0: Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 42 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney.
1: I'm Steve Vladek. So, if this is episode 42, I guess we now know both what the meaning of life is, and we're going to be retiring this episode jersey. Uh, for all time, for all purposes, for all teams. There's a
0: lot of a lot of connotations, a lot of symbolism under the number forty-two. You can forty-two. Get, you can get a Dan Brown novel out of this.
1: Uh, oh gosh, don't give me any ideas. <laughs> have you have you seen any
0: of these uh, sites that do like mock Dan Brown um, <laughs> like descriptions? No. Yeah, they are. They, g- Search this out. I will not try to copy In, in my it copious
1: free time, I will go and look at the, the Dan Brown <laughs> not-so-fanfic website. Maybe we'll
0: save that for the trivia portion of the show. What, Steve, what are we going to talk about today that's substantive?
1: So here it is, October 24th. We're recording this right around noon Central Daylight Time. Uh, we have a, actually a fair amount to talk about, Bobby. There's a big oral argument coming up in the D.C. Circuit this Friday. Um, in the Nathan Smith case, this is the Army Captain who was trying to challenge the legality of having the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force applied to ISIS. Um, the district court, of course, dumped that case on a series of justiciability grounds. We're going to talk a bit about what we think the DC circuit might be interested in on Friday. Um, and spoiler alert, why I think the question is not whether Nathan Smith loses, but on which of well, the which two grounds. grounds. <laughs> um, and just how how sort of, well, we'll get there. Um, okay. Other news, right, in related topics, you know, obviously there's been a lot of focus this week on the tragic news around the ambush in Niger. Um, Bobby, apparently members of Congress are waking up to the news that we have military forces <laughs> in various countries around the world like Niger. It is really it is really remarkable to see so many people professing surprise.
0: It's, it's as we will talk about in more detail, there's reasons that they should have known, and we'll talk about the implications of, of this episode. It's a springboard to talk about about uh, geography and organizational scope of the AUMF. And, and AUMF
1: reform, again. A, yeah,
0: exactly, which the timing's good. We'll explain why. Uh, but, and,
1: but I mean, there's only so many times you can trot out the Captain Renault being shocked that there's gambling going on in this establishment. It's like, I'm shocked that we're using military force in large parts of the world where there's, you know, at, terrorist activity.
0: Well, and I'll even quibble with uh, the characterization that we're using force in all these places one of the things we want to bring out in the conversation is there's there's a military presence all over the globe, including in Niger, and the, one of the interesting questions is when is it something that mm-hmm. needs to be linked to the AOMF or otherwise covered under the war powers, uh, maybe through an Article 2 type of argument, and when is it something else? So that's something that this episode really brings to the surface.
1: And indeed, I mean, if you know, I, I could imagine, say, either the Senate Armed Services Committee or, I don't know, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, finding this topic to be very interesting, but instead the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Corker, is too busy calling out President Trump on Twitter.
0: Well, I have no problem with him calling out President Trump on Twitter. Uh, But also, it's only fair to point out that that committee is holding an AOMF hearing next Monday. Um, Oh, great.
1: More talk. Well, you know, would you rather they not have the hearing? Um, no, I would rather they do something. Well, that that's the Talk question. less, legislate more. Talk less. Okay. Smile not, more. This is, yeah, so, yeah, I knew I was going to start you. <laughs> um, all right. Um, the, the third item on our agenda today is the sort of continuing saga of the travel ban. Um, If you've been playing along in the fantasy national security law podcast game at home, uh, you know that today is the day that section six of the second version of the executive order, the refugee provisions expire, which means that we could get an order from the Supreme Court not probably today, but almost at any time tomorrow, probably dismissing um, the remaining aspects of the Hawaii case. But we also have now nationwide injunctions reissued by the same district judges in Greenbelt, Maryland, and in Honolulu against Travel Ban 3.0. So, Bobby, the more things change, the more they... Stay enjoined.
0: Yeah, very good. So we, we will continue our streak of always having some travel ban news. Because
1: apparently that's like we're doomed to that fate on this podcast.
0: And, you know, actually, before you mention the next item we're going to get to, let me just flag one that we aren't going to talk about because there's been no developments. And I know that that gets under your skin because we're talking about the still unnamed, still presumably detained in Iraq, U.S. citizen, <sighs> uh, ISIS fighter. So there's
1: been one development. What's right? that? Um, so the judge, Judge Chutkin, finally apparently did something, um, right? So Judge Chutkin uh, last week, I believe, on. Thursday. Oh, was um, that after we recorded? It was okay, after we yeah, recorded. Oh, well in that case, let's give the news nugget right? now. Um, so, Judge Chuckin ordered the government to respond to the ACLU's emergency motion for a show cause order um, and to basically respond by next Monday. So, that's October 30th. Yes. With reasons why the show cause order should not be granted. So, we will finally actually have to hear from the government about exactly what its legal theory is one, for why it can keep John Doe's name silent. Two, or for why it can deny the ACLU or anybody else access to him. And three, for why John Doe's attention is lawful.
0: Well, let's make... Okay, so I had thought we'd cover that last time. You're right. That dropped after our last show. So let's make a point of talking about that. Um, now, there's there's more. There's uh, <laughs> Bo <Beau laughs> Bergdahl. Bo
1: Bergdahl's in the news. Okay, so we'll we'll
0: talk about uh, the latest development in his case and some of the, the uh, commander-in-chief uh, complications associated with that. And then we'll close out with a quick note on... Uh, the fact that the National Defense Authorization Act legislation for the coming year is is currently in conference between the House and the Senate. They're ironing out the wrinkles. And Secretary Oh, Mattis, boy, are the wrinkles. Oh, there's always wrinkles. Secretary Mattis has issued uh, a so-called heartburn letter expressing <laughs> what are the things that are really giving him heartburn and the things that he'd really appreciate the conferees uh,
1: fixing. And apparently we're not supposed to second-guess four-star generals. Oh, that's right. Well, does it matter if they're serving... I, hey, the four-star general who the White House press secretary says we're not supposed to second guess is actually now the White House chief of staff. And indeed, if he was still a general, it would be illegal, but hey.
0: I, I, I think that uh, this ongoing question of civil-military relations that's brought to the surface in sort of seemingly laughable ways when people do things like refer to the attorney general as if he's a general right. is, is takes on an altogether different, not comical uh, – Aspect when you start talking about retired military officers who are holding civilian office, and people claim that they should be treated a as if they're still active service military officers, and b as if it follows from that that they shouldn't be questioned.
1: And and let me say, the people to whom you are referring is the White House press secretary. Well, right, exactly. Well, so maybe maybe that speaks for itself. Uh, that'll be it for the substantive
0: topics, and then we will <laughs> we will uh, abuse the privilege of having you listening to us by
1: giving you. Three bold predictions each for the, On the N- upcoming NBA season. Uh, spoiler alert: None of my three bold predictions are that the Knicks make the playoffs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, of course, because I imagine you're going to do your typical thing and, and endorse the Spurs and Kawhi Leonard for everything. I mean,
1: typical Steve Fladik. That sounds like typical Bobby Chesney and like bizarro Steve Vladek. Uh
0: Oh, right, that's me. All right, well, I'll have something <laughs> different to predict, just right. to be not predictable. So,
1: so let's start with Smith. So, so before the John Doe habeas petition came along, and actually, maybe the maybe John Doe will be a good from Smith. So before the John Doe Habeas petition came along, the only lawsuit that had really shown any sort of legs on the question of whether the 2001 authorization for the use of military force extends to the Islamic State um, was this very sort of strange lawsuit brought by an army captain who was basically challenging his, at the time he filed the case, impending deployment, Bobby, I believe to Syria. Um, or at least to somewhere maybe on the Syria-Iraq border, um, right on the ground that Congress had not authorized and the War Powers Resolution therefore prohibited um, his involvement as a military officer in a conflict against a group that was not covered by the 2001 AUMF. Um, this case was called Smith versus Obama. Um, in November of 2016, Judge Culler-Catelli um, dismissed the lawsuit on independent justiciability grounds, both standing and the political question doctrine. She held that Captain Smith didn't have standing because he couldn't show that he was facing an imminent impending injury to satisfy the injury and fact requirement of Article III's standing Mm -hmm. doctrine, and that the case was non-justiciable because it was asking the court to interfere in what was really a political dispute over the scope of the AUMF, Harkening back to the Vietnam-era mm-hmm. political question cases about how courts shouldn't really interfere until there's a clear interbranch conflict, given that Congress has, for all intents and purposes, acquiesced um, in extending the AUMF to ISIS, funding, not objecting, etc., Judge Claudio Catelli said, no lawsuit.
0: Right. And so
1: now we've got the uh,
0: oral argument pending for Friday morning. Friday morning. Tell us about the panel.
1: Oh, it's a great panel. If you are if you are a plaintiff trying to challenge executive action in the national security space, uh, you couldn't imagine a better panel in the DC Circuit. Ooh, tell me more. I'm kidding. I thought so. Uh, it's uh, judges Griffith, Sentel, and Randolph.
0: Well, in fairness, I think this is, this case is in trouble. Sort of no matter who they drew, but obviously that's that's not a draw that's going to help them. Uh, to uh, kind of zero in on the uh, standing question yeah. first Steve um, so the 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 opinion below by color Catelli talked about how he
1: had no injury in fact um, what do you think is it is that is that the right analysis? I, I think that's the ball game. I mean, I think so. So I'm not sure that was true at the time he filed the lawsuit, where he um, might have a deployment. Right, yeah. but you know, he's actually no longer on active duty. Um, so it's <laughs> I mean, a small obstacle. Well, right. I mean, so of course he's subject <laughs> to recall, um, and indeed, uh, President uh, Trump just issued an executive order last Friday uh, covering uh, covering retired members. I think there's
0: there's a. Uh, not really any live prospect well, that so he is so, going to be recalled. So I gather that's question. for a handful, maybe a 100 Air Force pilots who are going to be doing some training.
1: Uh, well, or or you might say 100 commercial airline pilots are going to be that's right. <laughs> dragooned back into the Air Force that's to do right. some training. Well, well, that's, I wonder how the airlines are going to feel about that. Yeah, that's part of the deal with, uh, no with doubt. service. But anyway, so all this to say, I, I, I actually, I mean, folks who have been listening to us for a while now um, will not be surprised to hear that I'm deeply sympathetic to – the merits claim at the heart of the Smith case, that I think it's at least a close question on whether the AUMF covers ISIS, and that I think you and I are in accord that it would actually be generally beneficial to have that question settled one way or the other.
0: It would be beneficial to have Congress well settle I said, well, Okay, so yes. by an appropriate body, <laughs> by an appropriate um, body. In but, the abstract, we can if we abstract enough, we can find total agreement totally. on everything.
1: Totally, um, the sky is blue. Um, there is a sky. There's a. There you go. <laughs> it has a color. It has a color. <laughs> um, I, I do think that the facts of the case have changed enough to sort of make standing an easy out, even for, yeah. as you say, a more sympathetic panel. Now, of course, there's the specter of um, disputes that are capable of repetition yet evading review, right, which is supposed to be an exception for this sort of mootness, like standing qua mootness problem. I, I just, this isn't the, that kind of case. Yeah, that, that seems like that line of argument would collapse into anybody who
0: brings the case, at least if they're a service yeah, I you just, could I always just, have standing. E-
1: even I, who have lots of problems with the Supreme Court's Article 3 standing jurisprudence, who think that the doctrine is overextended and overapplied to serve its purposes, you know, this does not strike me as a particularly compelling case. Indeed, I dare say it might be better for the doctrine um, if Captain Smith loses on the injury, in fact, standing prong. Because after all, what
0: might really come of this is a really strong for the government political question ruling.
1: Uh, along the lines of the one the D.C. Circuit handed down in in June, right, that we've talked about previously in the Bin Ali Jaber case um, about Yemeni victims of a drone strike trying to sue for damages and declaratory judgment. You know, I'd be worried about a a broad, especially from this panel, um, about a broad, you know, service members may not challenge the legality of their orders, political question holding, which could have consequence, you know, assume a case where the plaintiff really does have standing, where you've got an actual or imminent injury, where you've got causation and you've got redressability, I would want that case to be justiciable.
0: Now here's an interesting question. If if the ultimate question that's supposed to be left in the hands of the political branches is whether or not the Islamic State is properly assimilated to the 2001 AUMF on a succession theory, right. um, uh, that obviously is a question of a kind that comes up in the habeas litigation. Well, so this is why this is, is why time, I don't think right?
1: the, this is why I think the government's political question argument is very weak, and why I'd be much happier with a standing-focused ruling. Because listen, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about John Doe in a second, right? Imagine if the John Doe habeas petition gets to the merits. Right. The very question Captain Smith is asking in his lawsuit is the very question that a habeas court would have to resolve on the merits if and when John Doe's case gets there. And
0: indeed, uh, in the Guantanamo habeas litigation over time, the court frequently grappled with the question of organizational connections. Yep. Uh, I think I can't remember the particular petitioner's name, the detainee, but one of them is uh, is someone who was associated with the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, IMU, and the court had to deal with uh, the question of, all right, does IMU count as an associated force? The district court thought yes. Uthman, maybe? Uh, could be. I, I truly don't recall. Yeah. But the important point is the the district judge thought that it was perfectly justiciable. Indeed, it was the central question to be determined whether or not the organizational right. ties that had been alleged was even part of the AUMF.
1: Right. So, so listen, I mean, I, I would be very nervous if we get a holding, especially from this panel, um, that these kind of disputes are categorically non-justiciable even when a plaintiff would have standing. I think it would cause no violence to doctrine and no great heartburn perhaps to anyone other than Captain Smith and his lawyers for the panel to say um, whether or not, you know, standing might have existed on facts that were different than the ones we have now you no longer can prove an imminent yeah. injury. Well, We're done.
0: That's clearly one
1: way to get rid of it.
0: And, and so I think what's interesting about this is to ponder whether the uh, the only difference between the habeas case and this really is the standing issue. Mm-hmm. Or if instead, is there some way in which the justiciability is different when it's habeas and that, that it's intrinsic to the context or the procedural posture of
1: the litigation right.
0: to determine uh, whether or not the the issue itself is a political question.
1: Um, Or or in the other direction, right? Might this panel have real problems with the specter of a service member suing Right. Um, I mean, there are there are analogous cases where the Supreme Court has been really wary of suits by service members against the government challenging aspects of their military right. service.
0: All of this, to me, reinforces the idea that the real problem here
1: really is a standing. It's a vehicle problem. He's not the right person to bring this. I think claim. that's right. And so I hope that that's I hope that that's what this D.C. Circuit panel yeah. concludes. Given who's on it, I am not especially optimistic.
0: Well, should we pivot right from there into the Doe? I think so. Yeah, okay. So speaking of- Doe is really ACLU v. Mattis. This is the still unnamed U.S. citizen held as an enemy combatant in Iraq. So uh, last week, as Steve said earlier, we we did get a ruling out of the district court uh, obliging the government to file by the 30th, October 30th, which is, what is that, next Monday? Next Monday. Next Monday, um, their response showing cause, I believe, Steve, do I have this right, that it's about whether- the ACLU should be allowed to have access to the detainee or to communicate with him to find out whether or not he's going to allow, authorize them or ask them, want them to represent him.
1: That's right. So they basically took the Chesney the Chesney approach, right? Um, Let's get in order to show cause. In order to show cause. Now, now
0: let, me, let me clarify. Of course, my, my suggestion had been make the government show cause why the ACLU should not be the next friend. And my idea was that would draw out the fact, the possibility that there actually has been communication with this person's family there. That may have been the case. I'm starting to think at this point, like, well, probably not. We'll certainly find out on Monday,
1: right? Um, We will find out on Monday. I will just say that, you know, I am still worried that the nature of the proceedings, as they have been sort of structured to date, provides the government a way out um, without solving the problem, right? That the government could simply say the ACLU can't, no matter what, right? The ACLU has no right to be an ex-friend. The ACLU has no right to demand anything because the ACLU has no standing. And like I would, I would be shocked if the government brief we on Monday doesn't lead with Article Three standing as the obstacle to the ACLU. Getting no, the relief There's she can.
0: no question. Indeed, I, I, it would be shocking if the government didn't object to to the next friend standing. But the fact remains is that uh, the person, whoever it is, does have a, a habeas right. The person can't possibly effectuate that right if no one can sue on the person's behalf as a next friend. And the answer can't be that there's sort of a chicken and the egg problem, would you agree? That there must be some way in which somebody can put it into motion. I think this— Preliminary skirmish in the litigation does put it into motion, and one upshot of this is going to be to find out does this person actually want the ACLU representing them? Uh, the answer may be yes, maybe no. Uh, it I think it helps the ACLU's side of the case that at this point it's we're over a month into this. Right. Uh, if this was a week into yeah. it, every every day you move backwards the more likely it is that the court's reaction is going to be that it may be that at some point there should be access, but right now the government has is within some sort of zone Wait, so of are, are you saying
1: that every day that goes on, this case gets you know more and more troubling? I never denied that it gets harder for the government <laughs> every day it goes on. Uh, it gets harder
0: in the sense that it be, they lose the ability to sort of invoke this sort of notion of the moment of capture instead of our business.
1: No, 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 I completely agree with that. I just, I'm still paranoid that the government's going to show up on Monday and say no standing, you know, Oh, they'll say that. No, no, but but and that and that and that it won't be obvious to Judge Chuckkin what the response is, right? Because if she says, No, there is standing because someone has to have standing, there are so many cases rejecting that logic to standing, right? So there are so many cases that say just because no one else has standing does not mean you have standing.
0: But do any of those prior cases involve a US citizen held in detention?
1: No. No, but what but one of those major but one of those major prior cases does involve a US citizen trying to obtain information on what the government was doing with the, on on secret programs of the government, right? We was it a,
0: I'm not sure which case that was. Richardson, w- right? Okay, the 1974
1: yeah. case where someone was trying to say the CIA was spending money in violation of Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution. That, that presents a whole different agree, standing issue. I agree. I think all, that's completely distinguishable. I, I completely agree. I'm just saying there's an easy way to avoid this problem, which is just to to do all of this through jurisdictional discovery, right? Agreed. Does the ACLU ACLU have standing that's a question of fact that depends upon whether the detainee is aware of the fact that the ACLU is trying to represent him and consents to that representation? Well,
0: part of what's interesting here, and I know the ACLU brings this up in their brief, is I believe one of the media reports indicated that the detainee has been Mirandized, meaning that someone... An FBI clean team, presumably, stood there and said, right. "You have the right to remain silent." And, and that he stopped talking. And you have the yeah, you have the right to counsel, and if you cannot afford one, one will be appointed for you. Well, it sounds like from the report, if right. we can trust it, yeah. uh, the person did invoke their at least their right to silence. Right. Um. And, and, and in any event, at this what, point,
1: which says to me, right, that maybe he actually is interested in contesting this process.
0: Right. No, so, I think I think I. So I don't think I know you're worried this is going to go away. I don't think it's going to go away. I think that the government is going to try to stretch this out. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to buy time to either get an indictment or figure out where they can transfer this person to. And that's that's the shoe that's waiting to drop. We still I, don't know what country other than Listen, the United States this person is right, The
1: day the been. government the day the government decides that their legal position is no longer tenable is the day that right. something happens. I just we're not there yet, and yeah, so that's right. And so I think you know let us put down a marker now that I, I suspect that episode forty three will include an in depth discussion of the government's brief.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That'll be a, that'll be really
1: fun to dig. Barn into. burner preview, preview alert. Speaking of previews, uh,
0: we've been previewing for weeks and weeks oh and weeks gosh. and weeks. The More travel ban, the gift band. that just
1: won't won't stop. All um, right, what's the latest? So super quickly, right? There are there are I think three relevant developments. I mentioned I think all of them off the top. Um, relevant development number one. Section 6 of Travel Ban 2.0, this is the March version, officially expires today. Um, there's, you know, the government has not said anything about what happens to the refugee program, right? There was the, the late September memorandum that revised the travel ban, the Six Nation Travel Ban, to change its terms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is nothing, Bobby, in the late September memo about the refugees. And so one question is whether there is some kind of additional memorandum forthcoming from the government, it would have to be today, because otherwise the refugee program goes back into effect on normal pre-January grounds tomorrow.
0: So what's going to happen?
1: Um, Well, I don't know. Uh, I expect we'll get a memo sometime this afternoon. Um, While that happens, right, the Supreme Court, given what it did two weeks ago today in the Fourth Circuit case, will almost certainly um, vacate the Ninth Circuit decision in the Hawaii case and remand that case with instructions to dismiss it as moot once the refugee provision of the March ban expires, which is midnight tonight. So look for a Supreme Court order tomorrow officially dumping the travel ban case. But while all this is going on, we now have two brand new hot-off-the-presses nationwide injunctions of the September version of the multiple-nation travel ban um, that the government is now appealing. So, you know, I think there are two observations here. One is the Supreme Court by probably this time tomorrow, will have dodged the Travel Ban 2.0 bullet um, but just like the JFK assassination files that are due to be released this Friday, this bullet's Special about episode. to take a, this bullet's about to take a, a strange turn and come right back to the court. Oh my goodness, I love it! And how is in the that JFK? for, for yes. tying things together?
0: That is strong. Let's let us hope that there are no legal issues that emerge from that document
1: dump. Oh it's going to. Can be. we can we title this episode um, the Travel Band's Magic Bullet? The travel bans magic. Uh, maybe. Let's see how this goes. We've
0: got a lot of good things
1: going I will here. say, though, I was especially impressed that President Trump decided to make sure everyone knew that he had decided that these files were going to be released. Never mind that under the JFK Presidential Records Amendments Act of 1992, they were set to be released on Friday unless this, he interceded. This is the deadline. Well, you know, it, it is true that he could have interceded. So say that. But like the Twitter, he tweeted, like, you know, I have decided as if there was no reason why this would be up now.
0: So here's a question. So who's who, do you, who does one? Who is one currying favor with when one claims the mantle of "I'm you know, the truth is out there and here it is"?
1: So, so listen. Everyone who listens to this podcast and anyone who reads my Twitter account, anyone who's ever met me, knows how I feel about President Trump. Um, I think this is just—he is so desperate to find things he can take credit for. Um, like we're at nine months into his administration. This administration has accomplished about as little in nine months as any administration since I don't know, maybe James Buchanan. Um, Ouch. And and so I think you know here's here's an interesting newsworthy development where he can say I had something to do with this.
0: I think the key, I, I think it's in the in sense narrowing that I think it's the newsworthiness. It's JFK. This is this it's is Ted cool. Cruz. Look, it's gonna it's gonna have headlines. On people on on of is it it Friday? Is. Of course, it's it gonna is. have headlines. And so this is a way of being involved in the story, but. Let's move on. Uh, we, we let's come back to Niger in a moment. Let's knock out uh, Bo Bergdahl's
1: situation. Oh, so, so just on the travel ban, right? Ah, so, nice. so I think so. Just the on the magic bullet travel band point because I, I I distracted you with my magic bullet. The magic bullet travel right. band.
0: I like that. Actually, sounds like the name of a cool band. Right. The magic bullet travel band.
1: Hmm. Mm. I have to
0: talk to the guys in my band about changing the <laughs> band name.
1: Um, so just to close the thought, I, I think what what all of this proves is that all of the government's machinations over the summer. And the Supreme Court's machinations over the last month have all been temporary. I think it is now clear that the legality, at least of 3.0, um, is inevitably headed to the Supreme Court, perhaps as soon as the end of this term. So the and right way it's to think not about this—it's all just been a warm-up. It's all just been a warm-up. Rehearsing a very, arguments. A very and and you know, listen. I mean, the reality is, by the time this case gets to the Supreme Court, you know, travel ban 3.0 doesn't look like 1.0 or 2.0. And so, you know, the government's probably going to be able to put its best foot forward yeah. by that point.
0: Well, and the central issue, to tie it back to something we were talking about earlier, yeah. is the question of deference yep. to the uh, executive branch on a national security judgment. This is something that a lot of us have written a bunch about. True. And it's a really peculiar case where, for reasons that are very obvious and are all bound up in the in the public comments of the president, the normal presumptions and postures of deference seem to have gone out the window. And the real interesting question to me is, that that's not that surprising. What's surprising to me is how it's kind of flipped around to become almost an anti-deference principle but the president really, to a certain extent, has only himself to blame on that one. Oh, quite. But okay. spe- speaking, yeah. of,
1: speaking of, of holding the president to account for his own words. Oh, no. Are you going to give us some hot off the presses? Uh, no, no. I'm just going to. I'm pivoting to Bergdahl. Oh, OK. <laughs> okay lay it on me. So um, Friday afternoon, right, we also got another awkward statement regarding military justice. Um, this is White not House. a tweet, right? This is an no, this actual, an actual release from the Office of the Press Secretary. Okay. And, you know, it's really fun sometimes to know something that a lot, to, to sort of be the first person to understand what something is about. Right, right? right. So all these people are on Twitter like, what the hell is this about? And I'm like, like oh, it's about Bergdahl. Yep, yep. Um, so let me read the statement Military justice is essential to good order and discipline, True. which is indispensable to maintaining our armed forces as the best in the world. True debt. Each military justice case must be resolved on its own facts. Sounds good. First hint, by the way, this is about Bergdahl, because what other military justice cases are drawing any attention right now? Oh, you know. Not the 9-11 trial. Um, The president expects all military personnel who are involved in any way in the military justice process to exercise their independent professional judgment consistent with applicable laws and regulations. In other words, don't listen to the president, the commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces. There are no expected or required dispositions, outcomes, or sentences in any military justice case other than those resulting from the individual facts and merits of a case and the application of the case of the fundamentals of due process of law by officials exercising their independent judgment, full stop. So all that sounds
0: like, you know, classic... Typical boilerplate. You wouldn't pause on it if you saw it before. You'd think, yeah, that's how it should work. Duh. It's
1: interesting because because this is a president who has made a, made made lots of hay out of Bo Bergdahl, that traitor, um, and about how if when he's when he was on the campaign trail, President Trump talked about how he, we should revisit the treason laws for Bergdahl. We should make sure he's executed. Trump repeatedly made a claim that five or six. He didn't always agree on the numbers. Um, special Forces troops were killed in the mission to rescue Bergdahl. That is just a bald-faced lie. Um, right? I mean, there are any number of both um, false statements about Bergdahl and um, inflammatory statements about Bergdahl that in any other context, Bobby, I think would be a serious problem of what's called unlawful command influence.
0: So all this is going back to the campaign, as you said. Why now ah, come out with the so corrective? Two,
1: so two things have happened. right? The first is Bergdahl was scheduled to be sentenced this week. Um, and indeed, the sentencing hearing was supposed to start yesterday. It's been postponed to tomorrow. Um, second, last Tuesday, President Trump said, "Yeah, I still stick by everything I said about that guy Bergdahl, Right. So you know, this whole like, do campaign statements count? Well, the president, as president, on He's Tuesday, ratified his own, prior ratified his statements. own, like, because the government's arguments were not. Like, in, in defending against the unlawful command influence charge, the government's arguments did have not been that the statements weren't inflammatory, they're that they don't count because he wasn't president.
0: So is it fair to assume then, reading between the lines, that what happened here was the president, happened, perhaps having heard that, there, that the sentencing was, was coming up. Coming. Well, makes I wonder it, where he would have heard that. Fox well, News, maybe? He makes a public statement that reignites the, the unlawful command influence issue just when it's a the deal is about to be done. Right, we're almost done. And so somebody from the Pentagon side pushes up through the system and says, "You've we've got to have a disavow of, this. You've got to have some kind of disavow. Right, clean it up. And and somehow or other, the machinery of the executive branch produced a statement. Whether or not you know, to what extent was he involved in that statement? Who knows? Correct. But but the machinery of the White House put out. Was well, it
1: interesting that he actually that his name is not on the statement? Right, that the statement is from the office of the press secretary. Right. So let me ask you a question. You are Colonel Nance. OK, you have the great misfortune of having to sentence Beau Bergdahl, who, by the way, is pleading guilty, right? I mean, let's, let's be clear, right? This is a, a guilty plea which can still raise unlawful and influence concerns because of the sentence. Now, I assume the guilty plea had a, a sentence recommendation? No, not in the military. Oh, they don't do that in the military? Not really. Interesting. Um, I should take your class. So you are Colonel Nance, OK? Um, which of two things do you think is true? That President Trump meant what he said on Tuesday, that he still believes all these horrible things about Bergdahl and that he thinks that Bergdahl should be punished to the fullest extent of the law? Or that President Trump, whose name is not on the statement that was issued on Friday, stands by the statement that the White House press secretary issued on Friday? If I'm Colonel
0: Nance, I'm thinking, do I think that there's actually been any unlawful command influence? Do I think that any of this is influenced by anything the president has said or done, either on campaign, when he wasn't president, or much more to the point now that he is Commander-in-Chief. I don't think his, his campaign rhetoric can necessarily do the mm-hmm. trick. And I don't think there's any reason to think that that's what happened here. So I don't see this being a real obstacle. It's It's an ugly friction. Yes. That 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 uh, speaks poorly to to the president's commentaries on pending cases, but I don't think it actually means anything substantive. Now let me to add one wrinkle:
1: um, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces has repeatedly recognized not only that there is a prohibition on unlawful command influence, but there's a prohibition on apparent uh, unlawful command Caesar's,
0: influence. The Caesar's wife principle. Yes.
1: Um, does that give you
0: any more pause? Uh, I guess the question then becomes: Well, what counts as the appearance of unlawful command influence? Is it merely? Is it enough that someone says something, or must there be some reason to think that it may have had the impact? So now, uh, you know better than not whether there's a doctrinal elaboration. There is,
1: and story. and I think this would be a you know we'll see what Nance rules on the sentence. Let me just say this: I think that all of this is going to have the exact opposite of the intended effect. Right. Which is to say, I think that the president has now put enormous pressure on Colonel for Nance sentence. for a lighter sentence.
0: Well, and who knows? We have no idea. Maybe that was going to come anyways. But I do think that insofar as a decision maker is teetering on the brink between uh, this versus that, this may cause them to err on the side of the lighter sentence. In which case,
1: unlawful influence is actually doing the exact work it's supposed to. Indeed. All right. So Good job, President Trump.
0: Back to AUMF issues. Let's let's return to the Niger incident, which we didn't really get to before. Um, I think listeners probably are aware. And as we said earlier, there was this uh, horrific uh, fiasco. Uh, a large group. Uh, what is it? Like fifty something people conducted an ambush. Uh, that that killed some members of a special forces group. I think was it third special forces group is really tragic. Uh, four service members dead, and there's been a heck of a reaction. A lot of this stuff is, is is bound up in politics that we don't really need to dig into. A lot of talk about oh it's this is this is Trump's Benghazi versus uh, where are we fighting when when the world is happening. The issue for us, I think, that's in our scope, is what does this episode reveal a about where the United States claims its armed conflict with Al-Qaeda and its associated forces, including, of course, the Islamic State, uh, as the government has now long interpreted it, where geographically does this go? Organizationally, who else is in? Um, what Are we there fighting in Niger? That is, should we be uh, placing Niger on the list alongside Somalia, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, as a place where ongoing active combat operations take place? And, and on that one, Uh, I I say no, actually notwithstanding the firefight that occurred here, uh, I think the right way to to conceptualize the Niger operation is not a place where to the best of my knowledge, we have, Prior to this firefight, where I assume some of our members were shooting back, where we had been using force, we're there in an, in an assist mission. Um, the, the second question is: Well, what about the degree of congressional oversight? What does this tell us about congressional oversight? And It doesn't speak well that so many members have expressed astonishment to learn that there was a you know that there are some eight hundred service members in Niger. They shouldn't be surprised because this has been disclosed uh, repeatedly. I'm going to quote from a couple of War Powers Resolution notification letters that uh, the White House has sent to Congress. The first one, this is summer 2016. This is from President Obama. Uh, the relevant portion of the letter under the heading of, quote, Military Operations in Niger in Support of U.S. Counterterrorism objectives. Uh United States military personnel in Niger continue to provide support for intelligence collection and to facilitate intelligence sharing with French forces conducting operations in the Sahel and with other partners in the region. The total number of U.S. military personnel deployed to Niger at that time is approximately 420. One year later, President Trump has, you know, his version of the same letter goes up. The formulation is slightly different. Um, A number of separate notification paragraphs from... The Obama approach are kind of under the a single heading called the Lake Chad Basin region, and Trump's letter said uh, United States military personnel in the Lake Chad Basin continue to provide a wide variety of support to African partners conducting counterterrorism operations in the region. In Niger, there are approximately 645 U.S. military personnel deployed to support these missions. Goes on. Point being, um, it's it's not a recent phenomenon that we're there and it's by no means a secret that our troops are there in these support operations. It is the case that US uh, Special Forces in particular, one of their core missions is providing this sort of advise and assist uh, mission, uh, Foreign Internal Defense or FID uh, in support of, of governments we're supporting where they have insurgency or terrorism instability problems and we're there to train and provide assistance. And in those circumstances, as we've always known, this goes back to Vietnam certainly and before that, when you have uh, trainers and advisors in a dangerous situation overseas, there's a real chance that something like exactly this could occur, they could get attacked and it could raise the possibility that they use force in self-defense and that, that things sort of spiral upwards from there. And, Steve, isn't this exactly why the War Powers Resolution requires notification when U.S. forces are introduced, not in a combat role, but nonetheless in a situation where hostilities uh, can be expected? Notification
1: to whom, Bobby? To Congress. Congress? In letters Wait, like the ones I just quoted from. Con- Congress has letters that they could have read? They could have read them. And they could have been aware of where their U.S. forces deployed s- in this situation?
0: Some no doubt are. I think I think that— uh, it's, so,
1: Wait, wait. Some, like, maybe members of the Senate Armed Services Committee? You would think. Like, I don't know, Senator Graham? Possibly. Okay, just checking.
0: Yeah. So, uh, of course, the members are aware at a certain level. Certainly, the staff are aware. Uh, it's no real surprise, Steve, that uh, in a situation where the political pressure is to s- express concern about what's going on here— that members would begin to say, well, hold on, this requires more attention. I'm not sure I understood quite what was going on here. Uh, And in fairness, it's entirely possible that people had been briefed and told that our troops, though present there in an advise and assist mission, maybe they did not know that they were conducting the types of in-the-field movements that exposed them to this level of risk. So we don't want to come down too hard on the members who are expressing shock um, then some of them may be using uh, unduly sh- shocked language. <laughs> I, I can't believe this is ha- how did I not know? Uh, yeah. Read your papers. That's right. Okay, so Steve, does this tell us anything interesting about the scope of the
1: AUMF? No. And
0: indeed, is it even necessarily the case that you have to be able to link the AUMF to this particular operation? No. Why not?
1: Well, a couple reasons, right? I mean, one, you mentioned the War Powers Resolution, right? Not all overseas deployments of U.S. forces, even in context in which they are subject to being attacked, are under the AUMF, right? There are plenty of deployments where it's either a, su- a supply-to-equip mission, it's a training mission, it's, a, you know, sort of supplementing maybe diplomatic security mission, lots of reasons why it's not covered by the AUMF. Um, this is, you mentioned the War Powers This is why we have these letters, that's why we have this role for Congress to play, if only Congress wanted to play it. So, to me, this is not contra the, what you heard on the Sunday talk shows. This is not the final nail in the coffin for why AUMF reform is so important. This is a much broader and much more damning indictment of Congress's more general abdication of interest. Not, not action, Bobby, because you and I disagree about like, where the thresholds for action are, but just paying attention to where we have troops deployed and to what kinds of deployments they are and to these differences. I mean, the fact that you have Schumer and Graham, two people who ought to know better, right, both saying this means it's time for a new AUMF, I think proves not just how, like, unsubstantive the AUMF conversation has been, but how little Congress is paying attention to military deployments more generally. So I completely agree that this is just not an AUMF issue. It's
0: not that kind of role there. Now, if if it turns out, actually, no, we're we're firing missiles, that's totally different. But that's not the kind of role we have there. Uh, So I actually think that certainly the Armed Services Committee, I think that they do actually get briefings all the time on these issues. And that, that the expressions of shock and disbelief, frankly, to some extent, are a little bit disingenuous. The much more interesting policy issue here, I think, is the question of resourcing. Mm-hmm. And and there's there's obviously a finite amount of equipment and personnel to be spread around. Uh, these are vast geographic areas. Um, but this what's going to come out of this from a policy perspective is pressure on the Defense Department as to from Congress, as to why there wasn't better, uh, mm-hmm. you know, overhead uh, ISR. Uh, maybe there should have been. Maybe there should have been uh, American-controlled close air support available rather than than the French provided. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the right conclusion. <clears throat> I think that you can do this fine in coalition with the French. Um, but you see this episode and you think, well, they were, they waited an hour for that air support. If they're re- if if at least going forward, we now realize that they can be ambushed. That this sort of thing can happen. Uh, something more maybe needs to be done. But, you know, these are defense policy issues, and these aren't really legal issues, at least not until we take on a role there that's of, of the kind where you need to be able to justify it under either the AMFs or under Article 2. And, and, frankly, it's kind of interesting that it's taken this episode, which isn't really an AMF issue, to sort of light an additional fire under the actual AUMF debate.
1: Right, um, which just proves how sort of incoherent everything has gotten. Right. Well, uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking, you know, guys, this is all
0: theater. Nothing's going to change. They're going to have a hearing. People will say things that have been said in prior hearings. Um, That may be right. People like us. People like us. All right. Speaking of things that people just say, why don't we talk about the NBA as a lighter way to finish? Oh, we got one more.
1: You, skip, you sk- I was going to say, speaking of statutes that no one pays attention to.
0: Oh, let's talk about a statute that people really do pay attention so, to. So,
1: so because Congress never does anything, right? the dirty little secret of our field is that most of the relevant substantive provisions that actually do get enacted into law get buried in the annual fiscal year National Defense Authorization Act. Bobby, it's October. So, you know, alongside the apparent 702 reform debate we're having, there's an NDAA coming.
0: Yay, it's a vehicle that always goes through. This really is. <laughs> it has to. It, it, it has to. Uh, there's a great and, and wonderful tradition of the NDAA always getting enacted. And because of that, at the last minute, with lots it, of things no one expected, it, it is a train uh, wreck. wreck. It, <laughs> your words, not mine. It's a train that always leaves the station, or at least it always has. And so people try to get on board that train. Lots of interesting it's, it's,
1: stuff. I mean, it's, it's, just to take that metaphor, it is the last train out of the station. And so people will you know, do desperate things to get onto the train. People will cut off limbs to get onto the train. Well, so a good example of the sort of thing substantively that
0: matters to listeners of this podcast that one finds in a given year, the, the fiscal year 2012 NDAA is where you find the legislation that actually clarifies that there is detention authority under the 2001 AUMF, and it spells out what had already been worked out in the courts and through executive branch practice, but the only time it ever got into a statute was when finally, in late 2011, they stuck it into that year's NDAA. So what's in this year's? Well, there's a ton that's in it. I just want to flag one thing uh, that falls under the uh, the cyber heading. Section 1621, uh, I think this is the same in both the House and Senate versions, which are in the conference process right now. And so you'd think, since they're the same, we just need to explain what this thing is, and it's obviously going to become law. Well, subsection F of section 1621 drew a request from Secretary of Defense Mattis, that the second, uh, the second thing on his list of things he wants taken out during the a conference process is 1621F. What does 1621F do, you might ask? Well, let me uh, let me turn to the page here so I can read it to you. 1621F provides, title, policies relating to offensive cyber capabilities and sovereignty. Ooh, that is... Steve, that's language calculated to get
1: my attention. Indeed. It's like the Bobby Chesney provision. I love it. What does it say? It it, it should have just been called, why Kawhi Leonard won't be the MVP. And then, you know. Well, then
0: then that would get my heartburn heartburn letter going because that clearly (laughs) would have to come out. So this is – it begins with uh, some faithful language. It is the policy of the United States that – oh, and you know the executive branch loves it when Congress legislates in a way that declares what our – Policies shall be always an interesting uh, separation of powers matter. Let's set that aside. It requires, it purports to require that, quote, when a cyber attack or malicious cyber activity transits or otherwise relies on the networks or infrastructure of a third country, then, one, the United States shall, to the greatest extent practicable, notify and encourage the government of that country to take action to eliminate the threat. And, two, if that government's unwilling or unable to take action, the United States reserves the right to act unilaterally with the consent of that government, if possible, but without such consent, if necessary. A uh, parenthetical <coughs> at the end of F sub two that uh, looks to me like <laughs> that's kind of unnecessary since you already had the word unilaterally in there, but what have you. Um, this provision, Steve, basically says that if there's a cyber attack or malicious activity uh, and it's not defined further than that, uh, impacting the United States, although it doesn't actually say that. If it just is, if that's happening, and it's coming through a server or in some fashion is transiting through a third country, um, then before we take down or take action that will disrupt it, we try to get the third-party country to do it for us. <laughs> um, Mattis wrote, and I'm quoting now from his letter, uh, This, quote, would require the U.S. to notify foreign governments before we take steps to defeat certain cyber threats. We request removal of this section during conference. Well, does it really require advanced notification? That's obviously the preference. It creates a default where that's what you're supposed to do. But, Steve, as I I read it out, I noted that there is this carve-out. Uh, where the United States explicitly reserves the right to act unilaterally if the other side is unable or unwilling to take action. Now, this is all about guarding against uh, inappropriate uh, measures that interfere too much with the sovereignty of a third country, which is something that we know from endless media reports has, has been a real thorn in the side of operational planning in the in the cyber context uh, in many instances. But we're familiar with the unable unwilling test from other contexts, Steve. Uh, this is obviously, you know, something we normally hear about. In, you know, do you want you fill in the blank?
1: Well, in the context of uses of force in the UN Charter, exactly. And so, drone strike. Did I
0: pass? Yes, you passed the test. Let's checking to see if you're still still listening. Huh? Um, yeah. What? <laughs> Let's we'll try to wrap this up by kind of closing the loop on this. We know how the United States government thinks about unwilling and unable in the drone strike context. The idea is that you effectively waive your, your sovereignty objection to what we might do in your territory if you can't control your territory and stop the threat from coming through it. Look at you, Assad. Or, yeah, exactly. Or you, you just can't deal with it. And um, you know, so we've seen this play out in the drone context a bunch. Now it's being invoked here as well. Um, that's of interest in and of itself because there are those who, of course, don't don't like that particular yeah, interpretation totally. of how to think about Article Two Four of the UN Charter. Um, the critical question here is: is this actually is this the Trump administration and the Republican Congress signing us up for this sort of very strict? Hey, you've got to reach out first to a, to another country. It doesn't. It sounds awfully. It sounds awfully regarding of U.N. charter Article 2 I know, So that's why I think it matters a lot. It must be Obama. Well, <laughs> it matters a lot how strict this would be interpreted. Obviously, the Secretary feels that there's a risk this will be interpreted as genuinely requiring notice in every instance, if not most instances. He seems to read it as if it's every instance. Um, I think it's worth flagging that you can, if you just look at the example of Operation Neptune Spear and the, uh, the Bin Laden raid – where we certainly decided not to provide advance notice to the Pakistanis that we would be coming into their territory and the legal underpinning of that decision obviously at some level is covered action title 50 which sort of sidesteps the issue but easily could have been reformulated and maybe was reformulated as look they're they're not su- it's not sufficiently clear that they're willing and able to yep. deal with this yep. we've got to make the unilateral decision to go ahead and not wait to see how it plays out but rather predetermined that they're unwilling and unable and I think that same sort of rationale would apply here if for example you've got a malicious cyber activity it's uh, it's coming from Russia seemingly or it's coming through Russia but it's the North Koreans and can you really count on the Russians to be willing and able to do something about it depending on the circumstances (laughs) I can imagine where you'd say no you really can't we're gonna go ahead and act and it's consistent with the statute
1: so I mean, listen. I, I think the it's an interesting provision. It's an interesting debate. I wonder if in any other year it would have gotten a lot more attention.
0: Well, I, just, I think it's striking, though, don't you, that the the Republican Congress is
1: pushing this forward for the moment. I mean, I, so so we're still in. You know, we're the we're we're not we're we're only at 10 p.m. on the on the clock to midnight for the NDAA. Right, there's still time for this to to get softened.
0: It is fascinating. That it's in both, and it seems to empower rather yeah. than weaken. Uh, the international law specialists within the administration yeah, that's right. who, in the past, we've been told, have have raised a red flag on a variety of operational responses. Right. So, so,
1: right. I mean, so one wonders, where is this coming from the National Security Council? Is, is this coming from state? state I mean, it, it, it sort of feels that way, right? But yeah.
0: I don't know any of the backstory. If you're listening and you know the backstory,
1: <laughs> ring me up. Um, or, you know, post it online somewhere. Even better. Um, okay. All right. So with that, why don't we pivot to frivolity, Um so if, you're, if, you're, if you are not an NBA fan or don't want to know what our three bold NBA predictions are, that's a good time to say we'll see you next week. Okay, Steve, uh,
0: let's trade off. Your first bold prediction.
1: My first bold prediction out of the NBA season is three slash four games underway. As I said, it's not that the Knicks are going to make the playoffs because they're not. So here's my first bold prediction. The NBA MVP for the 2017-2018 season will be Giannis Antetokounmpo. I've shown you what I wrote down. Greek freak MVP. We have unanimity. Boom. All right. Well, that's not that bold if we both think it's a it's a prediction. I don't know. I think we might be overreacting to a good start to the uh, season. I th- but listen, four days ago, I would have said the same thing. I mean, I I just I think you know the Russ Harden thing is sort of done. Um, with all due respect to Kawhi, right? I think he's still not going to win the MVP this year.
0: I, I think that uh, I think that part of what's going on is there's a freshness to having the Greek Freak as, right. a, as a clear candidate, yeah, and Milwaukee's a team on the rise. Exactly, and, and and so there'll be a little bit of a weight against
1: all the usual suspects, right. and that'll the, affect the, Kawhi the Kawhi up and comber well. MVP vote.
0: That'll happen with Kawhi, yep. Kawhi as well. So,
1: all right, so we agree on our first poll prediction, mm-hmm. and Giannis Antetokounmpo, which, which by the way, absolutely means it won't happen.
0: <laughs> right, we've cursed him. Yep. The NSL podcast curse. Yep. All right. What else? Will we. What, what's your second? Bowl what's of your predicting? second? All right. Um, since, since yours wasn't that interesting. After okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I will predict for you that the the man who has replaced Tony Parker since Tony Parker's out uh, as the Spurs point guard Dejounte Murray All Star team this year.
1: Wow. He is he is off to a great like, start. Like chosen or like emergency replacement substitute? Uh,
0: not nah, chosen. Like he's not going to be one of these like first oh team, the day first before. Five. He's
1: not going to be voted in. Right. Um, we don't but, have the market. But to, a reserve chosen by that. He'll the, be a
0: chosen mm-hmm. reserve. That You heard it here first.
1: All right. Uh, so my second bold prediction is, despite the MVP campaign from the Greek freak, I actually think that the biggest challengers to the Cavs in the East are, believe it or not, I'm going to say this with a straight face, the Washington Wizards. Well,
0: they've had a good start. John Wall's looking good. There's a couple of the guys I'm not familiar with <laughs> who appear to be pretty good. not real sure about all these teams in the East. I, don't really I haven't really.
1: heard of half these guys. <laughs> and the ones I have heard of are over the hill or, you know, some of them never had a past.
0: <laughs> this so, guy here is dead. I'm completely willing to believe in the utterly weak East that, sure, Washington will be in there. Somebody's got to challenge the Cavaliers. Um, I will I will kind of go the opposite direction with my last uh, bold prediction and, and predict that the uh, worst team in the NBA this year is going to be the Dallas Mavericks.
1: They're going to be worse than the Knicks? They're going to be worse than the Knicks. They're going to have
0: the most picks in that lottery.
1: Wow. Okay. Um, that's, that's. you know, that might not get invited to Dallas anytime soon.
0: I know. And I say it with a heavy heart, especially because I think Dirk Nowitzki has been just such an awesome player over time. Um, but they've just gotten in this situation where they need to replenish the tanks.
1: All right. Uh, bold prediction number three. Oh, that was my bold prediction, number three. Oh, uh, oh, the Mavs are the worst team. Okay. Yeah. Um, so here's my bold prediction, number three. Um, the not bold part of my prediction is that it will, in fact, be Cavs-Warriors again in the NBA Finals. Here's my bold prediction. Cavs in five. Well, I
0: certainly agree that the Warriors will not win the Finals. <laughs> <laughs> it's because they won't be there. It'll be a great rematch of the Spurs and Cavs, and the Spurs will win it. And that's not a bull prediction. That's just a fact. <laughs> that's
1: a lead pipe, stone cold <laughs> lock.
0: Cinch. Bank on it. We need some sound effects, you know, some kind of a. We really
1: don't need sound effects. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, but what we do need to do is go is get out of here and go, lunch. and go to our appointments committee meeting. Oh, geez. you're right. All right. So we got we got to go figure out who we're hiring quickly. Let's get out of here. So on that note, everybody, uh, follow Bobby at, at Bobby Chesney. Follow me at, at Steve underscore Vladek. Follow our podcast at NSL Podcast. Please leave us a review on Facebook. Please share it with your friends. Um, If you really want to do something nice, share it with your enemies. Um, And we'll be back at you next week. Until then, stay safe out there. Adios.